In this edition of AML Conversations, I thought it would be timely to look at the current state of U.S. sanctions programs relating to Iran. I sat down with Tim White, Vice President of Business Development and Sanctions here at AML RightSource. And during our conversation, Tim walked me through the history of the sanctions against Iran and where we stand today. Tim is a nationally recognized experts in sanctions programs and provided me with really great insights. I think you'll find his insights very useful for you as well. Tim, uh, hardly a day goes by that we don't see something in the media about sanctions against Japan. Can you take a couple of moments and walk us through where this started? Certainly, Elliot. Um, I, I set a little history here. Uh, in the late 70s, the United States was under the pinch of an energy crisis. And amongst that energy crisis, um, there was a revolution in Iran in which there was a protest. They were protesting that the U.S. was showing support for the deposed Shah of Iran. And on November 14th, uh, revolutionary forces or demonstrators took control of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and held roughly 60 individuals hostage for 444 days. This was at the end of the Jimmy Carter administration. This is pretty much where it all kicked off from. So Jimmy Carter took advantage of the International Emergencies Economic Powers Act and the National Emergencies Act and fundamentally laid out the framework for the freezing of all government assets of Iran here in the United States. Like I said, this was at the end of the Carter administration. Ronald Reagan stepped in literally during the Carter administration and did some negotiations on the side. And basically three days after Ronald Reagan took office, he negotiated the Algiers Accord, which released the hostages. Now, this is in 1981. And at that point, when he released the hostages, he actually gave the sanctioned money back to Iran for the most part, uh, roughly $12 billion, and basically revoked all the sanctions that Jimmy Carter had put into play. A few years goes by and there's a Marine barracks bombing in Beirut in October 1983. Ronald Reagan takes it upon himself to designate Iran as a state sponsor of terrorism. This is the first line in history where we start to associate Iran with terrorism. He puts in several uh, sanction programs that are fundamentally designed to restrict the revenues that Iran is receiving from their oil exports. Iran's biggest asset being their oil, and it's kind of their economic lifeline. So we start to put these sanctions against oil, and we will see that throughout uh, all of the sanctions. So the 80s is a long time ago. Um, for many of our listeners, it's, um, you know, uh, they were either young or um, twinkles in par their parents' eyes. So can you can you walk us through a timeline for Iranian sanctions since the 80s? Certainly. So I, I think it's important to note that the bulk of the sanctions started beefing up again against Iran during Bill Clinton's administration. And Bill Clinton put in 
basically the groundwork and the bulk of what sanctions are currently in play today with respect to Iran. Um, it was identified that Iran was stepping away from some earlier agreements to limit their nuclear development. So we were aware that they were, in fact, enriching uh, uranium. Additionally, Clinton identified that in the process of their support of terrorism, it was essential that we further uh, pinch their revenue sources from petroleum. And we did this by putting in play the Iranian Sanctions Act of 1996. And out of that came the Iranian Transaction Sanctions Regulations. And there was a comprehensive definition of what assets were, what goods and services and properties. And, and fundamentally, the definition came out of all transactions of value came into the scope of the sanctions at that time. So Clinton administration gets new laws passed, starts a comprehensive sanctions regime. Then 9-11 occurs and it becomes a trigger for a major increase in the U.S. focus on international terrorism, financing of terrorists and how to use sanctions. So talk to us, a little, talk to me a little bit about how 9-11 impacted specifically the Iranian sanctions programs. Well, this is kind of an interesting development because from a financial community, you're absolutely correct in that 9-11 was the trigger point for we need to be focused on sanctions and on terrorism. Uh, Bush 2 administration at that time's focus was on Iraq, um, and that was a concern that there was uranium and weapons of mass destruction being developed in Iraq. So Bush too, there was very little focus on Iran at that time until 2005 when Ahmadinejad became president of Iran. And then how did the sanctions programs start to focus, shift their focus to nuclear proliferation? Certainly. So, like I said, Ahmadinejad became the president of Iran in 2005, and it was very apparent that he had objectives of creating a nuclear program within Iran and was accelerating the development of enriching uranium, importing technology to do such. And at that point, there became a, a shift towards WMD, um, with basically weapons of mass destruction and, and how to counter those elements. The focus, once again, was on restricting the revenues for petroleum. Okay. Now, time flow, flows forward. We get to, to 2010, and Congress passes SASADA, the Comprehensive Iranian-Iran Sanctions Accountability and Divestment Act. What were some of the significant elements of that that statute? Well, this is this is probably the advent of modern day sanctions uh, with Sasada. So, as I mentioned earlier, um, the Clinton administration put the bedrock in place for Iranian sanctions uh, by putting uh, two major uh, regulations out there, which in the industry we call Part 560 and Part 561. When we talk about Sasada, we're now in the Obama administration. 
and it becomes very apparent that Iran has continued its nuclear development and Obama has stepped forward to follow through with what Congress had passed and Sasada did two major things. Fundamentally, it put together secondary sanctions. The concept of if you do not abide by U.S. sanctions, you in and of yourself could become a sanctioned individual. And that's a key element that we have seen from that point on being utilized, um, not just with Iran, but with, throughout the sanction regimes that we uh, are in compliance with today. The second element was fascinating from a standpoint of we used the National Defense Authorization Act, and we used it from a standpoint to isolate the Iranian Central Bank. And what that did was it allowed the United States to cut off the Iranian Central Bank and the Iranian state-owned banks from the system we know in the banking world as SWIFT, and that is the exchange mechanism for money moving internationally. This put tremendous pressure on the Iranian economy because they could no longer deal uh, in the local or in the international uh, financial world. They had to uh, basically go to other extents to try and trade money and circumnavigate the sanctions. I think it's also very important that Sasada really was the piece of legislation that worked with all the other countries that have sanctions against Iran from a standpoint of this was multilateral and it triggered the United Nations putting additional sanctions on Iran and basically brought them to the table uh, for the nuclear deal we now know as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the JCPOA. And how did the JCPOA change the Iranian sanctions regime beyond what you've already mentioned? Well, what it did was it allowed for a rollback of the sanctions on the condition that Iran would restrict their development of their nuclear program to the level that it would only support nuclear energy, that it would not be able to and kind of the bandwidth was to keep Iran at least one year out from being able to switch their nuclear program to a weapons enabling program. So the United States rolled back all of its secondary sanctions, and it also enabled Iran to get access via the central banking system, uh, their central bank and the SWIFT system. But probably the biggest impact was the European countries that wanted to take advantage of the economics within Iran. All of their sanctions basically went away completely. The United States had only rolled back sanctions for elements that were related to weapons of mass destruction. A lot of our sanctions regime still stayed uh, intact, but the thought was that just the secondary sanctions being rolled back would allow Iran enough economic, uh, if you will, stimulus to get its economy back into play.
So in May of 2018, President Trump declared that the U.S. will no longer be a participant in the JCPOA. Can you take us from that announcement to where we are today? Absolutely. So as we were just talking about Sasada getting us into the JCPOA, um, that went into play uh, in 2017. And roughly within a year, uh, President Trump pulls us out of that agreement. The agreement in and of itself is still intact, but the United States rolled all of its previous sanctions back into enforcement. So the secondary sanctions that were in play before are all now in play. And basically there was a 180 day period from May 8th, uh, 2018 to November 4, 2018, where all of the previous sanctions we had rolled back uh, were now in play. Additionally, the Trump administration played real hardball with its powers from Sasada to put a threat of secondary sanctions in play on anybody that was to interact with Iran. And this is a major component because you had the European countries wanted to go into Tehran, start develop that energy uh, program, do commerce, etc. And the Trump administration said, you do that and we're going to sanction you. So you had major petroleum companies like uh, FINA in France, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, that wanted to go in and develop uh, these energy resources. And the United States is saying, you do that. You're no longer doing business in the United States. And, and it's fascinating from a standpoint, it's this concept that the, the the people outside of the United States kind of pick at the United States for using its sanctions as having an extraterritorial mechanism there. It's not really extraterritorial. It's a choice. You do business with Iran, you're not going to do business in the United States. Um, and that's drawn a, a real hard line there. Um, there are other key elements in us stepping away uh, from the JCPOA from a standpoint of um, we had allowed with the JCPOA an alleviation of sanctions against avia uh, civil aviation equipment so that Iran could in fact start to rebuild its civil aviation program. But with the JCPOA going all the way out of the picture with respect to the United States participation, it allowed the United States to, uh, again, infringe upon their development of oil resources. And in later times, as in just at the, uh, in the last six months, we've put in additional sanctions against iron, steel, aluminum, and copper. And we refer to these as sectoral elements within a sanction program where they are specifically targeted. Uh, and SDNs can, in fact, be designated out of those programs. I think it's also noteworthy, Elliot, to identify the fact that during the Trump administration was the first time that the U.S. sanctions program had designated an official department of a state or country a terrorist organization. The United States designated uh, 
the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, as a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, and that has brought a lot of focus in on this is not just about a nuclear program. The Trump administration basically criticized the JCPOA substantially because it did not have uh, elements in it for missile systems as well as additional elements of supporting uh, statewide terrorism. And that's why they stepped away and are hoping to force the economy of Iran back to the table to bring those elements into further negotiation. I think... Go ahead, Tim. I was just going to also kind of conclude from a standpoint of the Trump administration stepping away from the JCPOA. They also took away some of the waivers that they had provided for other countries to continue to receive um, oil from Iran. In the original JCPOA, there were provisions for certain countries to continue to receive Iranian oil, and that has basically come to a stop. And there's pressure on all of these countries to wean themselves off of Iranian oil, which, again, puts greater pressure on the Iranian government. Tim, I want to thank you for uh, taking some time today to walk us through uh, both the history, but equally importantly, the complex roadmap that underlies the Iranian sanctions programs that are in place today and how we got here. Um, I think it's very important for our listeners to have the opportunity to understand this background so as they um, work to comply with the current sanctions, they understand the why, not just, just not the what. So again, thanks a lot. My pleasure. AML RightSource will continue to publish material relating to sanctions and other timely AML and financial crimes compliance topics. You can find that content at amlrightsource.com. Keep listening for more installments of AML Conversations. And thanks for listening today.